essentially pre-Zodiac Fincher, again, he's like Don Siegel. He's like a great personal pulp director. I mean, most of those movies are pulp movies, Alien 3, 7, The Game, Panic Room, you know, and and like you say, Fight Club is kind of like his Dirty Harry. It's like his zeitgeist movie that is kind of, you know, Dirty Harry, when Siegel made it, was this interesting kind of bridge between his kind of past as a classical genre director, but also as like part of the new Hollywood and, and, yeah. and all that. And so, you know, but I think with Zodiac, suddenly that movie does sort of that that now, like if I'm going, if I'm comparing Fincher to classic directors, like if he was Don Siegel before, suddenly with Zodiac kind of pushes him up into like the the stratosphere of the Hitchcocks and the Fords, you know, yeah. like the really, really, truly great directors who are really like both bending the medium to their own ends and really engaging with the culture in a and and with collective uh, neuroses and and fears and things in a really profound way. And what's fascinating is that Fincher, when he gets to that point with Zodiac, where he really directs this masterpiece, that kind of launches him on this new phase of his career, where in my opinion, he does his best work, kind of one movie after another. And he's like banging him out at a pace that is yeah. faster than what he was doing when he was doing the pulp movies. Like suddenly the period from Zodiac that includes Zodiac and Benjamin Button and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Social Network and Gone Girl, you know, that is a, a, a shockingly short period. You know, he's doing those almost at a rate of one a year and they are astonishingly, astonishingly ambitious and complex movies. And in my opinion, some of the greatest movies ever made. I mean, I honestly, I place Zodiac and Gone Girl. Those are, I think those are as great of movies as anybody has ever made anywhere. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film of course stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host Blake Howard. This is the 21st episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Scorpio Part 1. Our introduction today was provided by the best screening moderator in LA and probably the greater US, Jim Hempel. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening, especially Spotify. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. And I also want to let you know that links to our Patreon that has weekly rum and rant podcasts and special uncut Zodiac sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed, are all in the show description on your podcast app of choice or at oneheatminute.com. Now, joining me to solve some puzzles around the kitchen table are Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt, writer and producer of The Post, Longshot, and one of the writers behind the second season of David Finch's Mindhunter, Liz Hanna. Online veteran film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary Drew McQueenie. Stalwart supporter of everything we do at One Heaminute Productions, film critic, writer, editor at New York Magazine. He's contributed to publications like the LA Weekly, the New York Times, the Village Voice RIP. A writer and director known for New Guy, Purse Snatcher, and the barber of Siberia, the one and only Bilga Ibiri is back. And finally, host of the incredible Screen Drafts podcast and Vidiot's Trivia, Clay Keller. 
Every episode we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This sequence of the film sees the truth revealed about Toski's hubristic prank turned career derailing error, a devastating loss of the last stalwart of the Zodiac case. One of the most iconic images in this sequence of the film is a young father, Robert Graysmith, creating a puzzle activity with his children around a dining table. In the film, this leads to Graysmith's 1979 breakthrough with the Zodiac's second cipher. Walking right up to, and sometimes tiptoeing over the edge of the line of what is appropriate with his children in this case. Graysmith's amateur outsider position could not be more emphatic in this final stanza of the film. We'll hear again that this is not his job and perhaps solidifies that it's rather his calling. Graysmith has unwavering curiosity and seemingly unquenchable energy and enthusiasm. Graysmith and now his kids are amateur sleuths. Graysmith cannot articulate the why. Why him? Why this case? When is it done? So this week's theme is named after the Jay Morgan directed and Adam Brody star vehicle about a once prodigious and now listless man-child PI. The Kid Detective. And now, let's get to our scene. Maupin used David as a character in his column. David got a kick out of it, and so he wrote a couple of anonymous letters asking for the character to be brought back. It was like writing fan mail to himself, that's all. But David did not write that letter. No, I'm sure that he didn't. I'm, and, and I'm sure that this will all blow over. Blow over? They kicked him out of homicide. They made him give his handwriting like some The sensational June Diane Raphael captures our attention as Mrs. Toski. After her buoyancy keeping the Toski family afloat to complement her husband's obsession and the demands of his work, for so much of the film, here we see genuine concern. James Elroy, in one of Zodiac's commentary tracks, talks about the greatest detectives he's ever interviewed or observed maintain order in their work that they simply cannot at home. We are now seeing the usually dapper and suave Toski, albeit classily, lounging around in a robe with a medicinal tipple playing jazz records. As we encounter Mrs. Toski in this scene, she's mediating Robert's check-in while monitoring her husband's pacing. Hearing her translate the reasons for the lapse in Ruffalo's Dave Toski is registering with Graysmith who is deeply empathetic. While Mrs. Toski looks one way on the phone, Graysmith looks another, foreshadowing their eventual and perhaps inevitable call-ending dispute. Robert's eyes are to the left of frame, towards Dave, in proximity to June, and always towards the way that the Zodiac case will be impacted. June's eyes are to the right, away from Dave, shielding him from the embarrassment of this informal interrogation. It does not feel like an accident that Mrs. Toski's greatest offence 
is that her husband was made to give his handwriting a final evidentiary necessity as an insult, a coffin nail in a case that's already plagued his life. Here's Drew McWeeney on the necessity for Zodiac to be grounded in mundanity. It's interesting because this film feels like he intentionally made sure to ground the Zodiac himself in mundanity. Yes. The Zodiac is not a superhero. The Zodiac is not a supernatural figure. The Zodiac isn't this brilliant super genius. The Zodiac got lucky. He ultimately, bureaucracy, the fact that interdepartmental cooperation was so poor in the area, these are the things that kept him active. Not the fact that he was a genius or that his code was so brilliant or he lucked out. And I think Fincher makes sure even when he is terrifying, like in the scene by the lake where he stabs the couple, um, there is still something about him that is human and doughy and a little soft. And he is not this terrifying monster figure as shot. He's made human and he's, he's kept at a very human scale throughout the film. I think that that is important and it diffuses the idea that he is in any way the hero or the lead of the movie. There is a version of this film that would have been very easy to make that is all about how great the Zodiac was or how brilliant the Zodiac was. And that's not this movie. They made him give his handwriting like some common criminal. May I talk to him? No. Okay, can you just ask him if he ever investigated a man named Rick Marshall? Is that all you can think about? Mr. Graysmith, Mumpin works at your paper. We trust... When that fact triggers Graysmith's reflex of pester, the entire tone of the conversation shifts. It's a great trick in this moment in both the scripting and the performance delivery of the actors to make Gyllenhaal's Graysmith the antagonist just for a split second. Tosky has been called by every weirdo in San Francisco and been shackled to rotary phones chasing this invisible man. And as he's hearing this conversation escalate, Dave Tosky's choice is simple. He simply takes the phone away from his protective wife and delicately places it in its cradle. He can't disconnect from her, but even when he's at rock bottom, he knows how to disconnect from Zodiac. Graysmith, on the other hand, is locked on rails. You can delay or defer this engine, but he simply cannot stop. Here's Jen Johans talking about Miss Raphael's Mrs. Tosky. But uh, the scene I really love is when she's sticking up for her husband when Graysmith calls. Like she knows it isn't Graysmith's fault that this stuff has happened, but she still kind of blames him for, you know, one obsessive feeding another. It's kind of like addicts, you know, two addicts together, ooh, chaos, you know or two alcoholics, like, you know, buddies at a dive bar. That's kind of the relationship. I'm sure she knows, like, so if you put Toski and Graysmith together, that's bad. Like, she doesn't fully blame him because he can't help himself just like her husband, but it's, she is sticking up for him after he gets um, taken out of homicide and there's the investigation going on. And I really like that scene. And I like how 
determined she is to like put herself in the middle and just be like a gate like no you're not talking to him until you know he comes in there and hangs up the phone himself but dave no one in my face dave I'll, I'll catch up to you you stop calling my house do you, do you understand i just me? need your help to find linda jesus look two seconds look We've been running handwriting, Sam. Who, who's we? Sherwood and I. Sherwood? Sherwood who was fired from question documents? Sherwood who drinks like Paul Avery now? He retired. Is that what he told you? What are you saying is wrong? I'm saying stop calling my house. The question of Rick Marshall in this sequence of the film is incredibly delicate. According to Fincher, in his commentary, the balance is leading the audience to the conclusion of the film at the pace they're meant to arrive there. And it required Graysmith's wholehearted expectation that after exhausting Arthur Lee Allen, Rick Marshall is the most essential and evasive suspect. The delicacy comes on these courthouse steps when the cautious encouragement of Tosky reverts to an outright hostility. Bring the Zodiac back into his home is something he can no longer abide. Rather than encouraging Graysmith's engagement, Ruffalo's Tosky is no longer handing off leads to Graysmith. He's outright cutting off the players that endure. Disgrace, fallibility, haunted self-medication, ensnares everyone from Philip Baker Hall's Sherwood Marill to Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery, who is waiting in the wings for his final three words in the film. The dynamism of this scene, the first that was actually shot for the film between Ruffalo and Gyllenhaal, took more than 70 takes to execute. That's worth it. We ran them on Rick Marshall. No, Robert. No, I know you don't think it's him. No, but I, mean, I think that no, Marshall knew Darlene, and I can't talk to Majot or Linda, so Robert, I'm going to talk to Bob. Robert, what? stop what? it. What? Okay, the Rick Marshalls of this world will suck you dry. They're blind alleys. What? He said he wasn't going to announce his murders anymore, Dave. He was do just going to do it. Do you know what the chances of us arresting someone are now? Too much time has gone by, okay? Too, too, too much of the evidence is lost. People get old, Robert. They forget. I have been a cop. For 25 years, murder police for 12. What do you do for a living? You know what I do for a living. You're a cartoonist. So what are you saying? I'm saying Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. Blind alleys are a dead end, a mugs game, a cause of action that leads nowhere. In essence, futility. They're the only causes for this podcasting investigator, for Graysmith, and for the filmmakers, especially Brad Fisher really worth fighting for. Too much time, too much evidence lost, the lower probability in the context of pre-DNA, modern investigation techniques. Doesn't seem like a coincidence that this debate is happening on the outside of the halls of justice in San Francisco. It's resolute that justice in the formal sense has to happen on the outside. It was Tosky's job. What is it a Graysmith? A question that's gonna echo in this sequence. For the first time, Gray Smith is truly alone in this case. Here's Clay Keller on the necessity for impediments as we face down the blind alleys of this case. And then we go straight to James Vanderbilt, who talks about the incredible pressure of screening the film for the San Francisco PD and the real Tosky and Gray Smith at the time of release. And the dynamic keeps it so, keeps every scene, the interpersonal dynamics give every single scene this like added level of intrigue and arc. Because it's not like Toski is 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 frustrated 
he's clearly, I mean, he's, this, this has kind of derailed his life. He is so frustrated by this case, but he's not like, okay, you take the lead and I'll help you behind the scenes. We're now on a team together. It is, has the constant adversarial thing of, of Toski is such a, you know, by the book guy. He knows I cannot participate in this, not only because it's, you know, it's against regulations, it's uncouth, but, you know, uh, doing extra judicial investigation with you bring stuff like that to court, they can just throw it out. Like he knows that he cannot be involved in this. Yes. And he he is at, at, at once conflicted in, I want this to get solved, but also stop involving me in this because it's just going to annoy me that I can't get involved. So every single scene, like I said, has that adversarial through. So it's, Graysmith is not just trying to find the Zodiac. He is also constantly having to try to get Toski to help him. Yeah. And there's all of those ex- extra roadblocks. It just gives every single scene a really, really fun energy where three or four things are going on at all times. Yeah, it was, we were we were in San Francisco and we were showing it. It was a sort of a benefit screening and a lot of police officers were gonna be there. And it was gonna be the first time Robert saw it and it was gonna be the first time Dave Toski saw it. And they had been given the script. So they, you know, and especially with Robert, we were concerned just because the movie has fun with him. Do you know what I mean? And yes. he's this wonderful, boisterous, goofy guy. But, you know, anytime I've been, and I've made a few films where this is the case, anytime somebody comes to you and is like, hey, we want to make a movie about something that happened to you, but we don't want to make a movie about all those cases you solved or all that great stuff. We, we want to make a movie about, Dave Toski, we want to make a movie about the one time you let the most famous serial killer get away. And we want to immortalize that with movie stars on screen. Robert Graysmith, part of this movie is going to be about how you you completely ignored your wife and your marriage <laughs> fell apart. Isn't this going to be great for everybody to, you know, I mean, when, when these people die in the first paragraph of their obituary will be something about this movie right? So, because film is forever. So with Dave and with, but Robert specifically, I wanted to make sure that he knew what was coming in the film and it didn't take him. And if he had, if he had concerns about that, we could talk about it. And great, send him the script before we shot. I love it. It's great. It's wonderful. I'm so excited. Cut to, we're in San Francisco. I am sitting in the theater with him. He is in the row behind me. I swear to God, this is exactly how it happened. And as the lights are going down, he taps me on the shoulder and he's so excited. He's, he's like, just so you know, I only read the scenes I wasn't in because I didn't want to ruin it for myself. And the movie starts. And I am mortified. I'm just terrified what his reaction is going to be. And since he's behind me, and Toski was was a couple seats down too, but I know Dave read it. He's a cop. He's not going to, you know. Um, he was, and he had, he had been concerned about the movie and said that up front. We had had to really sort of talk him into doing this. So he had vetted all of it. But I couldn't believe I was about to watch this guy watch his family fall apart on screen. Um, and and so, you know, two hours and 40, I used to smoke cigarettes then. I think I left this the theater like three times to have cigarettes. I was just, my stomach was beating itself. Um, and he thankfully loved the film and had no issues with it. And, and but I, I, I couldn't make that up if I tried that, 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 that experience. With oh my God. And it was so quintessentially Robert Graysmith. It was so, he was, he was just so excited. He didn't want to, he didn't want any spoilers. And, and, and I love the focus. He's like, I didn't read anything that I was in. It's like, no, that is such, 
that's such a you thing, Robert. Like, like that's what it was talking about. It's like, of course, I read it. I just didn't read the scene with Graysmith in it because I didn't want to ruin it. It's like, you know, I mean, you can't make that up. He's still out there, Dave. No, Robert, I am through with this. I am through with you. What about September 26, 1970? Okay, which one is that? Lake Tahoe nurse goes missing. One day before the vernal equinox, Dad? Yeah, Martha. Oh, got another on June 19th, 1971. Oh, that's gotta be near the summer solstice. Oh, guys, don't tell Mom about our special project, okay? How come you and Mom don't sleep in the same bed anymore? Hello? Mr. Graysmith, it's Captain Narlo from Napa. Oh, Captain Narlo. Um, thank you for calling me, uh, Beth. Um, I called you because we've been cross-referencing lunar cycles with the Zodiac's timeline. More often than not, each cycle since 69 corresponds with an attack with one of the letters or an unsolved homicide. Who's working with you on this? Um, uh, some colleagues. Dad? Uh, can, can you hold on one Dad? second? Dad? What is it? What's this? Now that Graceman's alone, the only unit he has left is his family. During when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply his children into Forbidden Evidence Association games. As Graysmith feels calls at home from the remaining figures of the case, now specifically Marlowe, he's shackled too. He's the final remaining outlet for theory submissions like lunar cycles, no matter how left of field. It's from the barrier, the end of this blind alley, and this batch of kid detectives that Graysmith is able to scratch a minor breakthrough on the second cipher. And in fact, during the filming and research of Zodiac, Max Daly, a key researcher of David Finch's and Brad Fisher's on the project, helped deliver another translation, a little bit closer, perhaps to the original decoded version that the Zodiac had intended to be found. What's this? decades since the Zodiac's last cipher was received, every federal agency has taken a crack at decoding it. But today, where those agencies had failed, a cartoonist has succeeded. How did you do it? Oh, uh, just a lot of books from the library, and um, I, I love puzzles, so uh, I, 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 I just, I... I Fucking I, library. I, I believe that you can accomplish anything you put your mind Finally with three words, and according to Robert Downey Jr., a factually accurate portrayal of Paul Avery smoking in a bar alongside his oxygen tank. He's out. He's a discard. Afflicted by the addiction of the case in all its carcinogenic quality. But as a really nice salve that even in his absence from the front lines, he is quietly relishing 
his old awkward protégé's unwavering commitment. Here's Liz Hannah discussing the allure of this dark side of humanity. Mindhunter is, you know, is a show about serial killers. It's not a show about serial killers. Yeah. You know, it's it's not it's not. It's really it's about the people who hunt for them or find them or want to sit down and talk to them. I think that's more interesting is like what type of person wants to sit there and talk for six hours to a sociopath. Um, and finding those little moments for Tench that then and, and Holden and, um, through, and Wendy throughout the whole season. But that was sort of like, you know, when I was talking about it, it took us a long time to figure out that that scene, it was that sort of unlocking of like, okay, this is actually where Tench is gonna realize he may be living in a different world. And that kind of opened it up. And then once you see that world and you see how horrible it is, you can't compartmentalize anymore. You know, yeah. if you think that you're part of the problem, there's it's harder for you to take yourself out of it and just say, well, these people are crazy. It's interesting how we can all become obsessed with sort of the dark side of or at least I, I am very sort of fascinated by the dark side of humanity and mm. how that um, presents itself or just how we can hide it from ourselves and from other people. And I think, you know, a lot of what I try to do in my own work is very much inspired by filmmakers like David, writers like Jamie Vanderbilt, who aren't afraid to really dig in and really look at you know, it's not just um, the Zodiac, it's the it's everybody else and, and all of us who couldn't ignore it and couldn't let it go and couldn't just, you know, and what is it about the Zodiac? I mean, that I think there's a line in at one point that it's like he murdered six people or something and there's somebody, 35 people have been murdered in the last two days or something. There's like <laughs> some line in there about that. Yeah, more people die on the commute. That's what it is, yeah. And I think that really is what, because we're fascinated by the evil in in the world, and we there's a gross fascination with it, but also I think a very human one because we can't understand it, we can't make sense of it in our heads, and that's for me is the thing that Zodiac does the best, and that's why it's both a serial killer film and it's also a movie about us and humanity and why we do this. I mean, I'm t you're talking to somebody who spent two years like <laughs> thinking about BTK and, and Wayne Williams, you know, and, and Manson. So um, it's, it is a, it is. So I went and wrote long shot. Cause I was like, I'm not gonna, just gonna take a break on that one. That, that for me is what is amazing about Zodiac. And I think that goes to the patience that we were talking about earlier and the pace is it's the patience both forced on the audience to say mm. like, this is not going to be what you think it is. Yes. It's just not. And also that the audience has for the film itself, which is like, I'm going to respect that you unspool this. I, I think Dragon Tattoo does this very well in, 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 as, as well. I'm, I am, am a very big fan of the girl Dragon Tattoo and I, it feels like a very strange continuation of Zodiac actually in a lot of ways it's it's kind of like 
because Zodiac is a true story, we couldn't find out who he is, but in, in Dragon Tattoo, we could. And so it's like put kind of finishing a thought that could never finish, for me at least, just yes. as a viewer. Um, I think Rooney Mara is incredible. I think Daniel Craig is great. And I also think he's hilarious in the movie. Like we don't right. get to see Daniel Craig be funny a lot. And right. he's really funny in that movie. I mean, this was before Knives Out, obviously. So we didn't get to see him like kind of play that guy. Um, so I'm, I am a, a very big fan of that movie. And I think it's again, going to this, and it's something, you know, obviously we did in Mindhunter, which is like the patience and, and the, the, you are not going to get all of the answers at once. You may not even get all of the answers, but you'll get like one or two, and it'll be a really both fun and entertaining, but also I think thoughtful ride, you know, and that's what I want from things that I, I watch. I want to both be entertained and I want to think about them. I want them to make me, you know, feel so, at least, you know, most of the time. Sometimes I'm like, I want to be thoughtless and <laughs> have, have, have absolutely nothing to provoke any, anything. That's a J? Okay. Honored him. Thank you so much. We found Linda. She's in jail. Isn't that great? That We Found Linda is a twofold barb. Gyllenhaal's Graysmith has already gone to the line to enlist his children's interests and skills in assisting with the case, his colleagues, and he's now prescribing the family unit with an accomplishment of his latest breakthrough. As he receives that call, he's sharing the frame with Edward G. Robinson's Illegal, a 1955 film about a district attorney, an overly aggressive one in fact, who unwittingly sends an innocent man to the electric chair. He then resigns, turns to drinking, and acquires a criminal clientele. Mr. Scott, how does it feel to send a man to the chair? I didn't kill her. I loved her. You thought he was guilty. You know you did. When I walk into a courtroom, I've got to win. I've always had a win. That's right, Scott. You had a string of convictions as long as a thousand last miles. But there's always that first mistake. And you've made it. Now you're on the other side of the fence twisting the law inside out against men who took over your job but couldn't take over your skill. Because you know every trick in the book. You should. You were once the best district attorney in the state. In this movie that clearly loves movies, the use of this poster signals fear of this exchange, you know, myopia that ultimately leads to self-destruction. And this is the last straw. Melanie has been seeing Robert invite the Zodiac and the associated dangers into their lives again and again. Rick Mar what are you talking about? You went on TV. You put yourself out there for him to see. <gasps> Hun, you're being paranoid. And who's been calling our house in the middle of the night at least once a week? Nobody. I... 
What's it going to take for you to be done with this? I can't talk about this now. I have to go see Bob Vaughn. Well, that's too bad, because we're going to talk about this. And when is it going to be finished? When you catch him? When you arrest him? Be serious. I am serious. I... I need to know who he is. I... I need to uh, stand there. I need to look him in the eye. And I need to know that it's him. Is that more important than your family's safety? Of course not. In another actor's hands, Melanie could easily devolve into this shrewish wife. And instead, she incisively lays out each blind alley of their personal lives. Robert attracting attention to the family, Robert excusing himself from family life for this increasingly involving case, and finally, to ask the important questions and just not accept the answers. When does it end? Fincher praised Gyllenhaal's ability to embrace the lack of heroics in the character and his performance here, conveying this true lack of insight into his own obsession. And James Elroy described Gyllenhaal's Graysmith as diffident and looming, and in this sequence he is deflated, he's slouched, he's resigned. These questions and lack of answers are another cloud over his pursuit. Here's Bilga Abiri on Gyllenhaal and Seven Years' relationship in the film. Because we have been primed so much by fictional mm. depictions of these kinds of things, where you know somebody has a hunch about something they saw, and it leads to something, and that leads to the proof, right? Like there's always the sense that there's you know everything turns on a dime, but it, but it turns correctly. Yes. Um, somebody sees, you know, security cam footage of, you know, the same car passing by a location in three different, and they're like, wait, what's that car? Why is that car? And then, then they find it and blah, 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 and we eventually find it. And, and it's, and, and this is, you know, this is what this genre turns on, right? Yes. And it's it's been that way since before movies. I mean, the thing I will always remember forever is Arthur Conan Doyle's Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. Where, and and you see this in the films too. Um, no, but there is that scene, uh, you know, at the at the end when Sherlock Holmes kind of has the people in the room and he walks over to a painting and he covers up the, the top half of the face and the bottom half of the face. It's just the eyes. And it's the same eyes as like the caretaker and it turns out that he's actually a descendant of the Baskervilles and is trying to kill them you know and it's like it's that like it's that dramatic <laughs> aha this person has the same eyes as this person in this old painting who's a descendant of the of this noble family whose members are being killed or you know it's like you know it's 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 great I, mean, I remember when I read it and I love I love Conan Doyle I love Sherlock Holmes I love Hound the Baskervilles but but when I read it I that that was jumped out at me as okay most mystery novels give you the information like agatha christie's whole thing is she's going to give you all the information and you're not going to be able to figure it out and then she's going to put it together at the end and it's all going to make sense whereas conan doyle's is fuck you i'm not even giving you the information <laughs> like we can't see that painting as the reader like there's yeah. no chance of us ever solving this crime because we are not in that space and we're not looking at that painting 
I don't even know if he ever mentions the painting, whatever. <laughs> Not even if he did, it wouldn't matter. We'd never see the guy. We'd never see it. We'd never see the eyes. We have no idea what the guy, the guy looks like. Well, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, and that's, I mean, some of that is the way that that mystery genre developed over the years, right? In Conan Doyle's time, nobody was trying to give the reader all the clues they needed. Um, they were just trying to tell a yarn. Um, but but so many of these things turn on a dime. There's one tiny thing that is like, and the Colum like the classic Columbo, one last thing, you know, there's always that one thing. And that's kind of become the cliche. And that's the thing about Zodiac is that one thing is never there. Never. Like the the, 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 the the Darlene thing is the closest it comes. And they build a, a kind of climactic, you know, proof scene out of that, of the fact that he lived so close to her at one point. But it's never that thing. And that's the beauty of it because you know, as they've said, as they say, it's like the handwriting doesn't match, the prints don't match, the DNA doesn't match. Like it's just not like the actual stuff you need, the actual stuff of evidence does not match. You've got, you know, you've got circumstantial stuff, but it, you never have the thing, the smoking gun, if you will, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, the film winds up being about having to live with that uncertainty. And it's interesting how towards the end, everybody's like, write the book, write, write the, the book, book. write their, write the book, because it's not like, all right, the case is open now, we're going to get this guy. It's like, we can't do anything. You write your book, because it's kind of about how sometimes works of art, uh, and, you know, works of art, be they good or bad. I mean, I don't know that Grace Smith's is a work of art, quote unquote, but it's work of art. It's a creative act. Um, you know, sometimes that stuff is better equipped to deal with the uncertainty of life and the problem of, of evil, you know? Um, and, you know, it's like um, some some previous folks have made the case that, I mean, I think Zodiac definitely does fit into that, you know, post 9-11, you know, genre, subgenre um, of, you know, films that are wrestling with the idea that there's evil out there and we're not necessarily going to be able to vanquish it. It's just out there and we kind of have to learn to live with that. And that's why I think the, uh, I can't remember who it was that said, you know, that, that talked about, um, I, th I think it was, I think it was Jen maybe that's talked about secretly, like the women in this movie are kind of the heroes. <laughs> yes, yes. They, they, they can um, sense the danger. They can, well, because they can sense the danger and, and they're like, you know, like, oh, you have to you have to live with the knowledge that there are bad people out there who could kill you at any moment. Welcome to my world, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of I mean, that's what yeah, the Chloe Sevigny's, you know, scene that that last scene between her and, and Grace Smith. I, don't, I think it's the last scene between her uh, and, and Gyllenhaal where her thing is kind of like there's no sense of oh my god you cracked the case or oh my god you're close there's no sense of support not because she doesn't care but it's kind of like this is going to lead you this is not going to solve your problem because <laughs> your problem is not really zodiac your problem is evil, evil. and that my friend does not go away you know? <laughs> why why do you need to do this? Why? Because nobody else will. 
That's not good enough. Are you done? Can I go? There's this final formal flurry that sees Gray Smith exit through a darkened doorway. And it's his darkest moment of isolation from his family, from allies connected to the original case. He's truly about to feel the perilous impact of being the central figure in Zodiac's crosshairs. To conclude this episode and lead us into Bob Vaughn's car and the 22nd episode of Zodiac Chronicle, here's a strange yet true story how obsession, in this case with film stock and film prints, can lead you to turn off your danger radar. Here's Drew McQueen. Well, I think anytime you get this focused on something, I there was a story, uh, d- let me digress for just a moment. There's yeah, a story Joe Dante told me one time. Uh, I was researching a thing I was writing and I was uh, talking to print collectors, film print collectors. Yes. And Joe Dante and John Landis share a vault at Universal. They have a film vault where they keep all of their film prints and they, they have between them uh, several hundred um, beautiful nitrate prints, old prints, like actual noir prints from the 50s and 60s, gorgeous, gorgeous material. Wonderful. And Joe has gone around the world assembling his collection. He will travel to go find a print. And he told me one time that he got a message about a film that he'd been searching for, a noir film that he'd been searching for for 30 years. And he got a message from a guy in Australia who said that, you know, he had a print and if Joe wanted to come, he could show him the print and Joe could decide if he wanted it. And Joe traveled to Australia, and then this guy picked him up and drove him like four hours into the de- just the outback. At which point Joe's like, "Oh God, oh God!" And the whole time out there, like, "I what is happening? Oh God!" They get to a shack in the middle of nowhere. Joe's like in the car, thinking, "Do I get out of the?" Do I? And he just finally was like. I think I'm okay. I don't think I need the print. I think we should go back. I don't want to go in there. That's cool. I'm not, I don't need it. And just you, you realize that your obsession has put you in harm's way, potential harm's way. And that you are so blinded by this need you have for this thing or for this answer or for this whatever, that you're all the radars that we have built in just shut off because you're tunnel vision and Graysmith has that several times in this movie that concludes the 21st episode of Zodiac Chronicles Scorpio part 1 the next episode Scorpio part 2 Robert Graysmith finally encounters Bob Vaughn and descends into the basement do not miss it Be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough, Unplugged Zodiac sessions are also available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Productions Patreon, linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed and performed by my dear friend, Chris the Duff, Duffy of Los Espinas. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Until next time. Goodbye.